Today we have a podcast that celebrates baseball, women, and African Americans. So it covers just about everything that's important. Pete Puccio set up the microphones at a recent interview with Claire Smith, who was the first female newspaper reporter to cover baseball full time. She worked at the Harper Current and she covered the New York Yankees for the Current. And then she became a columnist at the New York Times and now she works at ESPN. She was the first female African-American journalist to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And she visited WestCon to talk to students and the public about her life. This pod is a little bit longer than our usual one, but Claire Smith has led a fascinating life. So try to stick with us until the end. After we listen in on the interview between writing professor John Roach and Ms. Smith, co-host Chantel Williams would join us to talk about upcoming events on campus. So Pete, hit the button. Ladies and gentlemen, let us please rise and give Ms. Smith a Westcon standing ovation for her start. My first editor at the Hartford Current, who hired me after I stopped crying uh, over the death of the Philadelphia Bulletin, is here tonight. That was 1982. Thank you for bringing me to New England. Jim Smith, give it a round of applause. <laughs> I know how to hire a good it's an honor for me, Claire, to be sitting across from you. I'd like to begin by quoting one of your brothers, uh, Hawthorne, um, who I thought made two excellent, uh, important observations when you were inducted into Cooperstown. Uh, and uh, your brother said, uh, Claire was always able to marry sport and societal issues. It's important that she is a woman and a person of color, but that's not why she's here being honored. She's here for her excellence. We certainly welcome you here tonight in celebration of both Black Heritage Month and Women's History Month, but uh, we are definitely happy to have you here because of your professional excellence. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I tell you, uh, I was jazzed to receive the invitation, but I'm just over the moon because I got to meet Mr. Black. Um, I wouldn't cover baseball if it weren't for your generation, sir. I have always referred to your generation, my parents' generation, Jackie's generation, as the greatest generation, uh, the greatest generation within the greatest generation. Because what that African American community did was love this country unconditionally love a country that didn't often love you back and you fought in the wars you built the country you built the white house your parents and your parents parents are as much part of this history as any and you did it with such respect so i applaud you and thank you The way we're going to, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Claire a number of questions, and then we're going to open it up for your questions, too. So if you want to think about questions you might have as we're speaking, please, we uh, would love to hear from you. Um, so let's start at the beginning. You uh, credit your parents for a lot of your success, but you 
uh, also credit uh, them for bestowing some smart genes in you, um, uh, creative genes as well. So can you tell us about your parents and what each of them uh, did professionally? Yes, uh, my father grew up in Catonsville, Maryland, mm -hmm. and he, his parents were educators, and he grew up first in, uh, in a complex, complex. Uh, uh, his parents were the overseers of the Catonsville, Maryland um, Home for Friendless Colored Children, which was basically an orphanage. And he learned so much from, from my wonderful grandparents. He was an artist, and he accepted a scholarship to the Philadelphia Museum of Art uh, School in Phil well Philadelphia Museum of Art School. Uh, you all know it as Rocky's Steps, and he matriculated there. He met and fell in love with my mother, who was the daughter of of immigrants from Jamaica. They were house servants chauffeur. Uh, my mom was born in New York City, but she was not well when she was born, so they sent her to Jamaica to be reared for a while by her, her grandmother, who was basically a country uh, healer, if you were, midwife healer, and she nursed my mom back to health. My mom was on her way to England. Uh, Jamaica was uh, in the empire. Um, she was on her way to England to accept a scholarship to Cambridge when the war broke out. So they routed all the ships, the, the civilian ships, to the U.S. and safe ports. So she returned to her parents' um, home in Philadelphia. And she wound up at Temple University and finished at Morgan State, became a chemist. and. She worked in the, for General Electric in their rocket and space program. She was one of the hidden figures, if you will. And I, as a child, met the monkey that went into space before the astronauts did. Uh, I met him at the G uh, facility in Philadelphia. And she was my hero, and, and my dad was my hero, and they did a very exotic things. Uh, she used to go off to meetings for General electric scientist at a, at a wondrous place. It just was magical name for me, Schenectady, New York. <laughs> and I just couldn't imagine what that must be like to get on a little prop plane and as she waved to us and went off to Schenectady, New York. <laughs> so my parents were amazing and we grew up in a house of art and music and storytelling. My dad told stories about uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. He explained World War II to us with, with drawings. And we'd ask him a question, what was the atomic bomb? And an hour later, there'd be uh, sketches all over the floor as my brothers and I not only hung on every word, but he, he'd sketch it out for us. And, Heaven forbid if we did that in a restaurant, because that tablecloth was history. <laughs> He'd uh, sketch on anything that was available. So we were very, very, very fortunate. Came of age in the 60s, and the Kennedys, and my parents were my Jackie, 
and John Kennedy, but they were also my Jackie and Rachel Robinson. And uh, when you're little, they're just the folks that go out the door every day and go to work. But as you get older and you you learn more about what they did and the barriers they fought against and all, they they become your heroes, and they were my heroes. If you haven't seen Hidden Figures, it's an excellent film. It's a perfect time to watch it uh, about uh, black heritage and women's history. Uh, and as Claire said, her mother was uh, part of that movement that worked on the, uh, that really was responsible for the space program behind the closed doors. Um, it's a really amazing. So you described yourself as a shy child. Um, and was writing uh, an outlet, was it easier to write rather than uh, speak, and whether it was in school or elsewhere? Definitely. I always loved to write, um, and I just remember in the first or second grade <coughs> when my dad, uh, he latched on to something I wrote, and, and I wouldn't read it out loud, but we went into the bedroom, my mom, dad, and myself, and and I had to kind of speak it and perform it. Where's Thumpkin, I think it was called. Mm. And um, my parents gave me a typewriter at a, a pretty early age, an old-fashioned typewriter with ivory keys and all. So they must have seen something. They must have made a connection. I still have that typewriter. You do? Yes, wow, sir. Terrific. Yes, sir. Um, your love of baseball also came in large part from your mother. Uh, and uh, not only uh, your love of baseball, but of the Dodgers, I understand. Yes, uh, and that had everything to do with Jackie uh, Robinson. If you were an African-American in the mid-40s and Jackie breaks the color barrier, you are a Dodger fan. You are a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And not until, say, your team if it's the New York Giants signs Willie Mays, do you peel off to become a Giants fan? Or Larry Doby, Cleveland, and one by one. Well, I grew up in a city that was, along with the Boston Red Sox and the Detroit Tigers, uh, one of the holdouts for segregation, uh, breaking the uh, segregation barrier in baseball. So I remained a Dodger fan, as did my mother. And it took 12 years for the Red Sox and the Phillies and the Tigers to integrate after Larry, uh, after Larry Doby and Jackie entered the leagues in 47. So my mom was a diehard Brooklyn fan. She remembers October 1st, 1951, for two reasons. It was the date of her firstborn. Uh, child, the day he entered the world, my brother Bill, and the day that Ralph Branca gave up the home run to <laughs> the shot that was heard around the world. I'm still not sure if she was happy or sad. <laughs> so. Well, uh, we'll get to some other ways that being female led to some road roadblocks in your life, but I looked, uh, I read a, a story that you've shared about how your younger brother Bart was brought to Connie Mack Stadium rather than you because he was a uh, a boy and you were a girl, so he got to go see the doubleheader and you didn't. Um, did yes. that stir anything or did that come later that you knew that uh, the world might be uh, a little more favorable to, to males? Than My mother made that choice. Unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> Colfax Drysdale against Bunning and 
I believe the other Phillies pitcher was short, but that's three Hall of Famers right there. Uh, Colfax and Drysdale, and she took my brother because he was a boy. I used to tease my mom all the time. It was the primary reason why she wasn't named in my will. <laughs> uh, in your Hall of Fame induction speak at, uh, speech at Cooperstown, you recalled hiding under the covers with your transistor to radio past your bedtime, uh, listening to baseball games, sometimes even from the Montreal station you would listen, listen in French. Uh, yes. So what do you remember about uh, those times, about the, the magic of baseball um, that drew you to the game and turned into the passion that would lead through your life? Well, uh, thank goodness there were things called superstations so, and transistor radios, hands. <laughs> no, nine volt battery operated little $9 radios that could draw the signals in. As a Dodger fan, I had no chance of hearing the Dodgers unless they came east of the Mississippi. And then you'd pick up those superstations, KMOX, uh, the Mets, the Atlanta, Cincinnati on a good day. And, and I grew to recognize the voices, the Jack Bucks, and, and just followed the Dodgers whenever they came east. I loved listening to them in English and did so until the, the Toronto Blue Jays came into baseball and the Expos lost their English speaking station. So I started listening to the Dodgers Expos games in French. Le Lancer, pitcher, Le Derriere, catcher. And I started being able to kind of sort of figure it, figure it out along the way. But, I just followed them and followed them. I was shy. I didn't have um, too much of a social life, if you will. Um, being in the cutting edge of integration in the 60s, mid-60s, and early 70s, it had its pluses and it, and it had some minuses. My parents wanted the best for us, so we went into neighborhoods that didn't always welcome us, if you will. And, uh, but being shy, if you're one of 12 African Americans in a high school that numbered over 3,000, uh, and two of those 12 are your brothers, your opportunities to get out and do things were sort of limited. They were great. They both looked like Sidney Poitier. They had it, they had it made, but um, I had baseball. Um, so uh, this isn't giving anybody an idea of what to do if you want to be a successful Hall of Fame writer, but you dropped out of college at one point. You said that you, uh, you, said that you felt uh, you described yourself as feeling invisible and insignificant at that time and sort of lost. Um, can you talk to us about that? Sure. You know, how, you, how you felt, and then we'll talk about how you got out of it. Uh, as I said, the high school experience was rather suffocating for me, so I really, really was enamored with the pitch that I received from Penn State, which was on the verge of admitting its, its most diverse freshman class ever. And the idea of going to school with a large population of, of 
freshman that looked like me that I could, for the first time, look across the classroom and see someone like me. Um, it really, it really tugged at me. But there are thirty thousand students at Penn State at the time, and I got up there and I felt lost, absolutely lost, because I was a suburban kid, and found out that. I didn't speak urban American. I didn't speak any of the languages that were swirling around me. The, the kids from Philly knew each other. The kids from Pittsburgh knew each other. I didn't know the dances. I didn't, I just was so much cliche alert, fish out of water, that I again withdrew <laughs> into my room. There wasn't much of a change. I also thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I really wanted to be a politician. I wanted to go to Congress and run for president. There's still time. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I took some pre-law courses, and it was like, oh, God, no, I can't do this. This is So I was lost academically and, and uh, for a while. And after a while, I just, I just said, I have to go home. And I went home for a while, and my dad's like, I am so tired of looking at your face. What do you want to do? And I said, you know, I love baseball. I would love to work in baseball. He said, well, go back to school. We've got you. Go. Just do something. Go. And that was after a couple of years of working in retail, Woolworths, and, <laughs> and uh, Bambergers, which was the forerunner of Macy's. They did. They had my back. And I went to school, went to major in public relations at Temple University. And in order to get a public relations degree, you had to take at least one journalism class. Oh, was that? Did I do that? Yes. Sorry. Well, I thought everybody was going to clap when she said that. That, that was the hook. Uh, Professor Jacqueline Stack, uh, from day one, she had me. And I said, oh, I don't want to work in baseball. I want to write about baseball. I want to write my own ideas, my own thoughts. And that, that was my goal from that day on, to be a baseball writer. So I finished up. I actually had a job at a newspaper before I had the degree. And uh, it was great. So talk, walk, us through, uh, walk us through some of your uh, early newspaper jobs, your first newspaper jobs. Bucks County, right? Bucks County Courier Times, the neighbor, uh, the uh, suburban paper that uh, serviced my Middletown Township, Falls Township, right above Philadelphia. It was first <coughs> job I had, and I started out by just writing for free. They they covered a lot of things uh, with eager journalists who were collecting bylines. And so I got to review concerts and go to town hall meetings and just doing the little things that they just didn't have a large enough staff uh, to cover, but moved inside eventually and actually laid out the national section of the paper, which was the second section. And I learned uh, how to put a page together, how to edit. I actually worked on uh, Selectric typewriters, although I used to tease Murray Chass of the Times, my compatriot. I said, Murray, I never, I never worked on a typewriter. What's that like? And he just <laughs> like 
growl at me. But uh, I, I used to work in the back shop and watch the, the ink-stained wretches, if you will, the great men and women who put the letters in one at a time, and some of them had gnarled hands and missing fingers because they gave up their digits to these presses, these amazing, wonderful presses, press runs. I never lost track of my goal, which is to cover sports. That paper, unfortunately, had a sports editor who had a goal also, and that was to never have a woman cover sports. So I knew I'd have to leave, and eventually I did, and I went to the late, great, great, great Philadelphia Bulletin, and that's where I started. I got my start Penn football, women's college basketball. I even uh, got to cover one NBA game, and that was my first excursion into a, a locker room, and I said to my boss, Bob Wright, I said, but, but, he said, this is what you want to do, go do it. So it was, a, it was at the Meadowlands, it was the Celtics versus the Nets, and the Celtics had a center, Robert Parrish. The chief. Oh, the chief. Never smiled, right? Never smiled. But um, I, that was my, the, the gentleman I had to interview to do this story after. And so I'm five foot seven, and he's about 10 feet four. And I'm holding my, my tape recorder, and this man who never smiles was having a, a heck of a time trying to keep a straight face. And we both ended up laughing, and it was as gentle an introduction into the world of professional sports as one could ask for. That's great. What do you think it was about um, being, you know, uh, doing those various jobs, uh, editorial-wise and otherwise, uh, for newspapers that, uh, what, did, what did you gain from that as a, as a writer today? I think starting out, predominant, uh, my predominant assignments at the Bulletin, I worked on the news desk first. And watching the veteran copy editors it was amazing. I, I remember this one woman you were allowed to read in the downtimes, and she read the dictionary. Mm. One end to the other, and then started over again, read it. Um, I raised my hand when I started getting the assignments to, to craft the stories that the bulletin would run on the Iran hostage crisis. And I pointed out to the editor, I said, okay, so we're pulling from the AP, the UPI, New York Times, so on and so forth. And they're all spelling the primary characters' names differently. What do we do? And I was tasked with putting together an Iran uh, crisis style book. Mm. We'll go with this, and we'll stick with this spelling of Khomeini and this and that and the other. And that was a lesson in just be consistent, make your choice, get it right. Uh, and we chose the AP. So it didn't matter to us what the New York Times was sending, mm -hmm. we switched. So that was fun. I got to write obituaries, uh, again, pulling from this, this, that, and the other. That was fascinating. And to this day, 
I think some of the best writing that you'll ever have a chance to see is the New York Times obituary mm -hmm. uh, uh, writing because the, talk about telling stories. It was I had tears in my eyes laughing putting together the obituary on Jimmy Durante because it was <laughs> that funny. It was that funny. And newspaper, the sense of humor is off the charts. Did you have uh, a ghoul pool at the Hartford Current? Sure. Yeah, every newspaper had it. If someone turned 65 in the world of celebrity, his or her name went into the ghoul pool and you pulled it, and then there, you pay to put it in and if you hit the jackpot, you got the money and they picked another name. So, uh, to who was going to die? Yes, as to who. We called who it the Deadpool. So, which yeah. celebrity, when they got to be 65, then you would select uh, their name. So, you'd get Jimmy Durante or Art Carney or whoever the right. celebrity was. Right. And if they were the first celebrity to die, you won the pool and then it started all over again. And nobody made us crazier than Tito and uh, the <laughs> and Yugoslavia because the reports of his death were greatly exaggerated a uh, lot. So, our, our morgue, uh, we were very, very morbid, I guess, in newspapers, but the morgue was the library, and the bulletin had the, I would say, 12 morgues of the deceased newspapers that preceded it, so you'd go and I went and pulled all the clips going back to the first day <coughs> that Jackie Robinson integrated baseball just wanted to see what the great writers were writing. I ended up in tears because of the way it was acceptable by these major newspapers to demean and, and question his, his, his background, his intelligence, his humanity. They wrote as a, a, of him as if he were an animal can run, but is he going to have the intellectual wherewithal? And the n different newspapers, the nuances within that coverage. And I took them into my editor, Bob Wright, and I was outraged. And, and he was sitting there and he goes, are you finished? And I said, yes. And he goes, it was 1947. What can we do about it? It was just the way things were. I became really cognizant of how easily stereotypes and slurs can slip into coverage. So I don't say any athlete is articulate because that's an insult. I don't say that any African-American athlete runs like a deer or a gazelle or a cheetah or has this animal quote, quote, Quality because mm -hmm. that's demeaning, and uh, and I'm not above pointing that out to to editors and other writers. Jim, I think you were gone um, from the current. One day there was a big upset for a college team uh, basketball, and the lead in the paper the next day on that story was that so-and-so, a youngster who had made a mistake that cost this game, would be lucky if there wasn't a mob waiting for him with a rope at the airport 
and I, I don't think that was you, Jim. I think it was John at the time. And I took the paper and then I said, do you have any idea what this means? Do you have any idea what this means to a person, an African-American person? And no, um, but I explained lynching. I said, do you know that's lynching? You're talking about lynching. And the editor, it had to be John, he got very upset. He said, I didn't realize it. I said, well, that's what diversity is about. That's why we all come together so we can point out something that's anti-Semitic or just tone deaf or, or whatever. So that's what, what I learned in newspapers. Um, did, how did you end up in Connecticut? The bulletin folded in 1982, and we were the second major to fold. No one saw this coming. Uh, the Washington Star went the year before, and then we folded. At that time, if a major Pulitzer Prize-laden paper folded, editors came in from all over the country, and they literally, by the end of the day, the day of the announcement, it was a job fair. And I knew I wanted to cover baseball. I wasn't doing it there at the Bulletin. But Jim Smith's Hartford Current was starting this great experiment to cover the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Mets. They were going regional, and they were taking on the big dogs in New York and Boston. So Jim was there, I think, by the end of that first day to, to interview our sports staff members. I remember you told me, you said, no one would talk about themselves. They were, you should hire Jerry Fairley. No, you really should talk to Mark Hyman. And we were such good friends, but a lot of us interviewed with Jim for the one position he had, and he ended up uh, hiring me. So that's how. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> thank you, Jim. <laughs> thanks for coming. Uh, as Yogi said, thanks for making this necessary. <laughs> we'll, we'll turn the focus to Jim. Did you have any trepidation about uh, hiring, uh, first of all, a woman, and second of all, uh, an African-American woman? With, did it you know, enter your consciousness, or did you just go for the best uh, writer for the job? Bulletin folded, my boss put me on a plane and uh, I got down to Philadelphia and walked to the bulletin and um, editors were coming from all over the country. Um, I was sent down to hire a baseball writer. Claire wanted to cover baseball. Um, and we had the interview and her editor Bob Wright was with us and then we went to dinner and then I made her the offer and I said, yeah, you're going you're gonna to cover the New York Yankees. Then this patient's here, we, she comes to Hartford, and my boss tells me, not quite yet. She's got to cover some boxing and, and some, <laughs> some of this and some of that. And she did, and she did it incredibly well. But she wanted the New York Yankees, and by God, before the season was over, she was covering the New York Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> so Claire was the first female full-time beat writer to cover a major league team and cover the Yankees. What was it like? So, you know, that's an amazing uh, breakthrough there, but now you're the only woman in the all-male press box. 
Um, what was that like? Uh, we'll get into a little bit about the response from players and uh, managers and coaches, but what was it like, um, you know, getting along with the, the, the men? Did they welcome you as a colleague or was there resistance? And was that because of your uh, gender, because of your race, because of both? Okay, uh, let's start. I, I really need to clear this up, if only for the women who broke through that door before me. I was the first full-time beat writer, but New York City was the place where Sports Illustrated and Melissa Lutke filed the suit. 78, I believe. I started in 82. So there were other women, especially on the East Coast, okay, in the major metropolitan cities of Boston and New York and down through Philadelphia and Washington. There were women who, much braver than I, who had smashed through that barrier before. I was the first full-time beat writer, and I was so fortunate in coming into a baseball setting, the Mets and the Yankees. Yankees had to be sued to open the door. By the time I got there, they were darn proud of the fact that they had equal access uh, rules in place that would not be violated by anyone in uniform whatsoever. Uh, I never had a problem with the Yankees, never had a problem with the Mets. Um, when you got off the beaten track of the, the Northeast Carter and went into towns where they might have two reporters and neither of them was a woman, but you had to go into that clubhouse, then it, it, you were hoping that no one would have a heart attack when they saw you or you wouldn't have a problem. But East Coast, West Coast, Chicago, Places like that was fine. The support from our fellow writers was outstanding. Um, when the, the Yankees lost the, the lawsuit, they recruited one really uh, prominent writer in New York to try to talk the other writers into boycotting, not going in the clubhouse if, if Melissa went in and all the other writers ignored that prominent writer and said, she's got a credential. She's going in. We're going in. And that was usually the sort of support that you got. Um, so that was, that was good. You can legislate out the, the closed-door policies. You can't legislate away ignorance. So. A lot of my friends had really, really, really hard times. I had one bad day, and that was in, in Chicago in the 84 playoffs. I had so many friends who had five bad days every week that they covered because they were in at some Neanderthal uh, city or clubhouse or what have you with teams that wouldn't spring to your defense and are turned a blind eye to what was going on. So I, I'm often asked what was the bigger issue, race or, or gender. 
It was never a contest. It was never even close. Uh, gender, you just run into some troglodytes. Um, race, it was a really, really dangerous place for a racist to go because back in the day, there were a lot of African-American players and they let me know, they let female writers know, not in our clubhouse. Uh, I always thought it was a, a professional respect, partnership, if you will, pact because of the color of my skin until the Jane Grosses and Allison Gordons and uh, Susan Fornoffs, we started comparing notes and it was more, it wasn't color based, it was just, it's not happening to you in my clubhouse. So in the early 80s, the organization formed Association for Women in Sport Media, awesome, hmm. uh, formed up. And we had a convention, first convention out on the West Coast where uh, the founders, you would, they, they were mostly based on the West Coast. So they pulled together a convention and they invited some athletes who had been extraordinarily supportive. Ronnie Lott, the Hall of Fame football player, uh, attended that first convention. And there was a Q&A like this. And, and one of the women asked why it was that players of color seems to be so supportive of women uh, reporters. And Ronnie said, it's because we know what it's like to walk into a room and be instantly hated. I never forgot that. And these guys, they had your back, even on the subtlest slights. I remember sitting in the dugout interviewing Ken Griffey Sr. And a player, one of his teammates, walked by. And he said something, and it was blue. It had curse words in it. Cursing didn't bother me. I heard an umpire's rule was, as long as you don't use the word me, I'm not going to be upset if you curse, or use the word you, I'm sorry, you, we. I knew it wasn't personal. But Ken stopped the player and he said, don't talk like that in front of Claire. And, I, and I'm like, Ken, it's, it's okay, no big deal. It's, he goes, no, it's not. And the player apologized, kept moving on. And I said, Kenny, it's really okay. And he said, no, it's not. Because that player wouldn't talk that way in front of a white woman or his mother or his sister or his wife. And he said, and they're not going to talk that way in front of you. So those tiny little things, 84, the Padres, the, the fellows that gave me a hard time in the postseason had been outed, if you will, during the season as members of the John Birch Society. Mr. Black, you know what that is, but how many other people know what that is? Okay. The political wing for everyone else, the political wing at the time of the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, so these guys were just experimenting. It's like joining the Communist Party Club because someone in your 
refracted or whatever, and then you move on. You're in the Klan one day, and then, <laughs> or the John Birch Society, and then maybe you're in the NAACP the next day. But they were just experimenting. But it turned out that there was a fourth member, and that player was traded to the Yankees. Um, a pitcher from Long Island, and he had joined. Uh, I guess he was curious or whatever. But it came out in the paper, this was before the playoffs, but it came out that the Yankees were getting a, a John Birch Society member. And um, the Yankees at that time employed Oscar Gamble, Jimmy Wynn, Ken Griffey Sr., Don Baylor, Dave Winfield, Willie Randolph, on and on and on. They had a clubhouse guy. I'm wandering all over, but there is a point here. The clubhouse guy that organized the lockers, who sat where and all, he dated back to Babe Ruth's era. I mean, he went way back. He looked like he was born in his 70s. Uh, and he grew up in the clubhouse. He didn't have a formal education. He was a kid when he started. But he arranged a locker room because he said he thought that the black guys all wanted to dress next to each other. So everybody was lined up on the one side of the mm -hmm. room. Um, and this, this ex-padre comes in, and he's across the room. All the reporters want to talk to him about, what does this mean, John Birch Society? And we're standing around him, semicircle, and I look over my shoulder, and what Dave Winfield liked to refer to as the richest ghetto in America. They were all at their seats, in their locker rooms, in some fashion or another, holding baseball bats and watching. And, and that's when I knew I would never have a problem with race in baseball at the time, uh, because it was the golden era of African-American participation in baseball where you'd have maybe half the team would be Hispanic or black, um, and predominantly African-American among the players of color, it would not be an issue. Last year, there were 13 teams that had one or fewer African-Americans on it. So I can't say it wouldn't be an issue today, but it certainly wasn't in the 80s. Do uh, Dr. Clark, President Clark, talked about it. I'd like you to walk us through that night, uh, game one of the <coughs> National League uh, ch uh, Championship. Cubs, Padres, you tried to walk in to the clubhouse, oh, or in. you're in? Yeah, I'm okay. in. Um, I just want to point out, too, that it, this is 1984. You know, it's not 1954 or 1964. This is past civil rights. This is past the women's live movement. It's, it's recent history for most people uh, in, in this room. It's 1984, and when you think about it, uh, it seems like a story out of 1954, 1964. But sorry to interrupt. It's also six years after the SI um, lawsuit that opened the clubhouses but you have two leagues, two distinct uh, leagues, American and National. And the National League president, um, Lee McPhail, had a rule. If you had a credential, you, were, you had access to every National League club. 
the American League uh, was much more laissez-faire. If you had a credential, then you clear it with whatever team you want to cover. And if they say no, then you don't have access. So there were a handful of teams that said no, the Expos, the Reds, the Braves off and on, but definitely the Padres. Um, so, and do you think it was because you were uh, just because you're a woman, or do you think the fact that you were black? Oh no, no, this was across the board. This yeah. was Jane Gross. This was right. Helene Elliott. This was any woman in the National League. You had to figure Padres. out where the hot spots were okay. and the places, basically, to avoid because they weren't going to change their policies. Um, the thing is, is that we cover two teams, the Hartford Current, and we had a Red Sox writer. I've, and the Sox, if I recall correctly, were going to the postseason so that Red Sox writer was going American League. I got the short straw and I drew the uh, National League. I had worked in the American League covering the Yankees since 82, 84, so I'm re still relatively new. Um, we saw the Padres coming. We knew that they were heading to the postseason. So we started reaching out to baseball. Claire Smith's covering, we want you to know. And, and the league assured us. They said, oh, this is fine. This is not a problem because their policy ends at game 162. After the regular season, that clubhouse belongs to the National League. And after the championship series, if they move on to the World Series, then that clubhouse belongs to the commissioner's office. She's fine. Okay, I'm fine. So they play the game in Wrigley, and they lose. But I'm the only writer from the current. You cover both teams. So go down, and I'm in the clubhouse. And the players, the Birchers start. Predominantly, it's the Birchers start more than chirping, they're cursing, they're yelling, they get out, get out, get out, and the Padres staff, the training staff, the clubbies and all that, they start in too, and, and next thing I know, I'm being pushed physically on the back, pushed towards the door, <coughs> past the general manager, Jack McKeon, I stop and I said, Jack, I've known Jack for a while, and I said, Jack, we have this letter. I'm allowed in here. And Jack's response was, it's Dick Williams's clubhouse. So they keep pushing me. And as I'm being pushed towards the door, the door opens. And in comes Dick Williams, who had been in the interview room. I do the same thing. And I said, I have this letter. But Jack McKeon says, it's your clubhouse. And Dick Williams says, that's right. And he keeps going in. And I'm hmm. pushed out. So I don't know if, how many of you have had the privilege to be in the bowels of Wrigley Field. I say privilege very sarcastically, but it's dank, it's dark, it's 17th century, kind of like Fenway. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I'm there trying to figure out how I'm getting a story written. Henry Hecht of the New York Post is five seconds behind Dick Williams, and he's coming in and he sizes it up immediately. He says, what do you need? And I said, Henry, I need quotes. 
Amy quotes, and Padre's media relations director who had said, we'll bring you players, came out, and he said, who do you want? And I named four people to him before Henry got there, and he, and he said, well, the pitcher doesn't want to come, and this and that, and oh, so much for access. And Henry said, who do you need? And I said, tell Steve. And that's Steve Garvey. I'd known Steve since I was in college, having met him as a fan and talked to him about my dreams and desires of being a baseball writer, and he always encouraged me. So Henry went in, and Steve was in a, surrounded by reporters addressing this loss, um, and Henry went up to him and told him what had happened. And Steve, uh, according to Henry, uh, excused himself from this, this scrum and came through the door. And uh, as soon as I saw him, brave me, I just started to tear up and fall apart. And, and he came over and uh, he, to this day, I, I credit him with saying the most important thing an athlete has ever said to me. And that's, um, I'm going to stay here as long as you need, but remember you have a job to do. And it was his verbal slap uh, to get at it and stop feeling sorry for myself and mm -hmm. asked him some questions and thanked him. And I had what I needed. I had the loser's interpretation of the game. And I went over to the Cubs. and. They were just spitting fire because there were several ex-Yankees on the team that I had covered and the word had gotten back to them and they were just like, in our house, they're coming in our house and doing that and not in our house and they were just furious, Don Zimmer and George Frazier and some other folks. Um, and that was that and John Passa, my editor in Hartford, I think, if he had their phone numbers, he woke up everybody in the National League, everybody in the commissioner's office. And the next day, poor Peter Uberoff, in his first week as commissioner, was hit with this story. John Bircher's push black reporter out. <laughs> it, was, it was Hollywood couldn't have invented this uh, script. So. Peter had just come to baseball fresh from the Olympics, where I guess they were well into the 20th century, and he ran into this archaic, stupid system of different rules and everything. And he ripped them up that day. He said, if you have a credential, you're in every clubhouse in the major leagues. And he switched it just like that. So that was. Did anybody else in this room uh, have uh, Major League Baseball rule change because of them? Or? <laughs> Just Claire, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Did you feel at that, I didn't mean to joke and make no, light of no, it. No, no, no. Did you no. feel at that moment, uh, you know, this is going to be a pivotal moment, it's bigger than me, did you feel that, you know, this might bring about change? Uh, did you think that it got to such a ridiculous point that maybe somebody will put their foot down? Um, or was it, a, were you so concentrated on getting your story and also you know, that you had a job to do, that it, you know, it's only in retrospect that you realize, you know, what a pivotal moment it was, not for you, but for baseball. I, 
There were so many emotions. And one was that all of my peers, they stayed in the clubhouse because they had jobs to do, okay? They heard it, they saw it, they were angry, but they stayed. But the next day, their anger started spilling over in print, and it became a big story. No newspaper or TV journalist wants to be the story, and I hated that I was a story. It shook me to my foundation. John Pessa, my editor, you need to smack him in the head, <laughs> calls me and he says, you're going in there tomorrow if they have to arrest you and drag you out in handcuffs. And I'm like, oh, God. Okay, so no one wants to be that person. And the only people that I let close to me were my fellow women reporters. And we talked through the night, phone call after phone call, and um, lots of tears and until we laughed, and then tears again. And I didn't think anybody but those women could relate to what had happened. And they knew it's, it's like being stripped bare. And you want to say to your male peers, you saw it. Just write it. I don't want to answer questions. I don't want to. So by the time the series got to San Diego, it was a huge story. It was political. It was racial. It was gender. It was, it was an angry uh, mob going after the Padres. They were having horrible things written about them. Dick Williams was just... He was angry. Um, a lot of people were angry, including the baseball writers who were conf had confronted Peter Uberall even after the fact that he fixed this. He came to a meeting, and he was literally being yelled at. And, he, and he's saying, you don't have a problem. Don't you understand? This is fixed. I, you don't have a problem. And he's looking at me, and he's like, you don't have a problem. It's, I wish it was that easy. But the writers were angry, and the columnists were parachuting in, and, and <laughs> columnists have that, that freedom to write things like uh, Randy Galloway of the Dallas Morning News. The, the Cubs took the Padres out and threw them in the trash heap like the garbage that they are type. That stuff, it was that, it was that ugly. Um, Personally, it took years for me not to be afraid to go through and the, into the unknown, even going to spring training every year and knowing that that was the team I covered, the Yankees. I'd sit in the dugout and, and gather myself before going in. Uh, years later, I started getting messages that one of these John Birch fellows um, was asking to meet uh, Dusty Baker was his manager, and he's like, uh, Dave Jarecki really wants to meet you, really wants to speak with you. And I didn't respond. I, I see the Giants, and I 
wouldn't respond. And his story was really tragic because he broke his arm throwing a pitch. Remember which arm? But um, it turned out that there was cancer in the bone, and it was it, it had become quite uh, a sad story. But he was attempting to come back and. Dusty kept telling me he's a good guy and he real please do this, do this, please meet him. So then um, the next opportunity uh, to do that was at Wrigley Field. Wow. In the same tunnel, outside the same door, and we went out into the tunnel to speak. And all the reporters started going by and they're watching this and they're like, Oh, oh, and you could see the headlines. But Dave said that he had heard over the years um, what had happened, but he was positive that he hadn't participated, and yet he had been loop looped into this little group. group that his name had been besmirched. But he did an interesting thing because he said that he was, I guess, basically a born-again Christian, and what he was trying to do was make amends to people. And he asked me for forgiveness, and um, which I thought was interesting because if you didn't do it, you didn't need forgiveness. But I knew that I was not the only person in that conversation who was in pain. But I said to Dave, um, I said, that's, that's not my job. I'm glad that you're having this conversation with your God, but that's not my job. We're both hurt, and I wish you well. But that's the only one. Um, the the so nobody ever, Dick Williams, none of the other, nobody ever else apologized over the years if you encountered them? Eric Shaw died when he was in, he was committed to a mental institution. One of the players? Yes, I never met Mark Thurman. The fourth person who was identified as chirping at me was Alan Wiggins, who was African-American, and that really, 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 really crushed me. Mm. Um, I saw him years later. He was a Baltimore Oriole, and uh, I'm walking across the field at Memorial Stadium, wide berth. I saw him. I knew who he was. And he kept looking over his shoulder, and he finally said, do you know? Uh, I, he said, I know you. And I said, yes, you do. And he said, you're a reporter from Chicago. And I said, yes, I am. He goes, how do I know you? And I told him my recollection. And he said, I would have never done that. But I knew that he did. And that was that. Um, Dick Williams, I didn't know that it was possible to hurt more. But my, I'd seen Dick around the Yankees, and he was, he came aboard as a Steinbrenner advisor, and uh, 
He was still a little snarly and everything. I knew he knew me. And at one point, a scout brought me over and said, oh, do you guys know each other, Dick Williams? And I said, yeah, I know. I know you. And I just walked away. Years later, after Dick was inducted into the Hall of Fame, we ended up on a committee together, a veterans committee, to decide if a certain group of players would get another run at this. And I told um, Jeff Idelson, the president of the Hall of Fame, I said, I, I don't know about this. I, I don't know. And he said, I think he'll be OK. So we show up for a reception as this committee comes together. And Dick Williams runs up to me and says, I was reading your biography, and what a privilege it is to be on this committee with you. Hmm. How is it that we never met before? And I shook his hand, and I turned around, and I walked out of the room, and I saw Jeff. And I said, that hurts more than what happened, because it means that that day was just Tuesday. And uh, I think that he was probably dealing with some mental uh, uh, slippage there. And he was a really hard drinker back in the day. And he had been sober for a long time. I don't think he remembered. I'm convinced of it. But it, that hurt more than anything. So yeah. Um, Alan Wiggins. Um, he had a drug problem, and he contracted AIDS because of it, and he passed away. And I remember reading the obituary that said that the only person from baseball who attended his, his funeral was Steve Darby. Mm. And I, the next time I saw Steve, I said, that was really nice. Why? Why did you go? What was the reason? They weren't particularly close. And his response was, somebody from baseball had to be there. And that's just who Steve is. So I'm sorry. I have never uh, not needed an editor. That was 800-word <laughs> assignment that went on for 2,500. I apologize, Jim. I have a couple more questions, then we're going to open it up. Uh, um, I guess first, if you could, uh, there have been rumors this week that you're in talks with ESPN to get a contract that matches Manny Machado's, $300 million. Um, how are those talks going so far? Um, we're not allowed to shed <laughs> any light. Right, I want to keep my job and... Uh, and I want to clean out my desk yeah. with security watching. Claire so and I good. were talking beforehand. I'm a diehard Yankee fan. For the students who uh, uh, have been in my class, you might have noticed that. But uh, I, two things about the Yankees. One is I love this uh, comment that Claire made. Somebody said, you know, what was it like uh, covering the Yankees and being the first female? And if you know, uh, she was towards the end of those Bronx Zoo days. She said, I don't think that anybody noticed. They were all so crazy paying attention to each other and trying to stay out of the news. I really don't think they paid too much of attention that there was somebody else in the clubhouse. But also, 1981, Dave Winfield got a $2 million contract. And you would have thought the world was going to end. And now $2 million, you know, 
as minimum wage in baseball. It's pretty amazing. They probably call it dog track money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So did you, um, you, uh, you uh, became friendly uh, with uh, Jackie Robinson and his wife. Did you ever get the opportunity to tell the Robinsons uh, what their life meant in your life? I never met Jackie. Okay. He had passed, but I've had so many lovely moments with Rachel Robinson and Sharon. Uh, Sharon is just their beautiful daughter who's really picked up the baton of community service and social activism. Their, their uh, foundation is amazing. They work with college uh, undergraduates, graduates. They pour so much money in, into the efforts to get uh, students as much access to higher education. As a matter of fact, I just saw that the woman who won the Oscar, not for the... Regina King? No, uh, no, no. This was one of the two women non-actresses. Uh, set design? Oh, um, right. For, a costume right. design. Costume uh, design for co Black, Black right. Panther. Right, and the second woman was a, a Jackie Robinson Foundation graduate. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So... Um, Rachel was on the stage in Cooperstown in 2017 because she was given the Buck O'Neill Award uh, for community service. And she's just a beautiful woman. She really is. She's just wonderful. Uh, part of your Hall of Fame speech, you said, today I humbly stand on this stage on behalf of every single person in my profession, in baseball and beyond who was stung by racism, sexism, and other incendious biases, but persevered. What, in your experience, gave those so many people, the heroes that you point to in your life, what, and, and yourself, what, what, what do you think drove those people to be able to take a stand, to persevere, uh, and uh, stand up for what was right? Do you think there's a common commonality in, in being able to stand up for what was right in the face of such hatred and anger? Well, I'd like to think that Mr. Black's generation looked at his parents' generation and said, each individual said to themselves, what I'm going through can't compare to what they went through. I look at my parents' generation, Mr. Black's generation, and I say to myself, this is nothing what the Padres don't want to talk to me mm -hmm. because they don't know what a towel is. I've seen my mother chased out of stores. I've seen, um, I've heard the stories. I have suffered nothing compared to what they suffered, and yet my father's grandfather was a slave. So I know that he looked at his life with his college degree and his ability to have art shows and, and, and break barriers in his own very wonderful way as nothing compared to what his grandfather went through. So um, just to give you an example, I, I toured a lot with Larry Doby and Joe Black, Faye Vincent, Slick Surratt of the 
Kansas City monarchs, and we went to uh, college campuses where those gentlemen talked about the Negro League experience and basically talked about America uh, in the first half of the last century. It's a different world, and the students used to ask questions about, well, why didn't you just demand to be put in the same hotel? Why didn't you say, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at this restaurant and I'm, I'm, you have to serve me? And Larry would, with his quiet dignity, explain that these were laws that had badges and guns enforcing them. And he said, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. So my mom came of age in, the, in those 40s, and she told me a story that just stings to this day. She had a sister who was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and that is the home of Fort Bragg, a huge, I, I think to this day, the largest army base in the country. So she wanted uh, to visit, and, and in those days you rode the train, and my mom got on the train and with the box lunch and everything because my mom had to ride in the, the cars uh, for colored only. There would be no access to the dining cars or the, the sleeper berths or anything because it was a segregated train. Um, on this train, this was before the war ended, um, there were German prisoners of war who had access to, they were going to Fort Bragg, and they were in the diner and cars and this and that. And on that train were African-American men who were in military uniform going, to, but they didn't have the same rights as the German prisoners of war. And that's just the way it was. So, different world, and I'm glad that none of you have, have to experience that world. Before we open it up to questions, I think that's a nice time to uh, please say thank you to Claire for being here tonight. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Before Chantel joins us, I want to remind listeners that there are actually other WestCon podcasts besides WCSU 411. Today I'll talk about Gab and Grow, hosted by Mary Beth Griffin. Mary Beth is really invested in making sure students know what's going on around campus, and she is constantly in the studio here recording podcasts. Some recent ones include an interview with Charlie Alexander, who runs Campus Judicial Affairs, and you'll get to know him if you're a frequent violator of the rules in the residence halls. But Charlie's a nice guy, and he won't throw you out of school unless you really deserve it. Mary Beth also did a pod on spring break safety tips, which I'm pretty sure is destined to become a classic. Anyway, students, look for Gavin Grow to learn more about WestCon. And if you're not a student at WestCon, you should be. The university offers a high quality, yet a surprisingly affordable education. If you have questions about enrolling at Western Connecticut State University, send an email to admissions at wcsu.edu. Now, recorded live in the basement of Whitehall, here's co-host Chantel Williams. How you doing today, Chantel? I'm good. How are you? That's good. <laughs> I'm good. To, yeah, I answered uh, the wrong question. 
<laughs> I'm good. I'm glad you're good, too. Thank you. <laughs> you have a little cold today, though, right? Yeah, I'm just a little stuffed up. I think it's just the weather. And your roommates, right? Yeah, probably my roommates. They mm -hmm. probably got me sick. <laughs> yeah. I put it on them. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually what it is. Yeah. Good. <laughs> So what do we got coming up besides spring break? I, well, there's actually events happening over spring break oh. um, that I would just like to talk about just um, so students are aware. Um, the HPX uh, Nutrition Group will be hosting an online raffle, um, and it's all about eating healthy, and they know that eating healthy um, is difficult for college students. I know that firsthand. Living mm. on campus, it's kind of hard because we're constantly on the move, so it's easy just to grab something quick, and sometimes that something quick is not always the healthiest choice. Yep. So, um, And then if you're up late studying, um, you're probably grabbing something to eat. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Um, they want to just promote healthy eating, and so they're hosting a raffle, and um, they want uh, students to buy the raffle, and they want to uh, post healthy recipes and, and stuff on their um, Instagram page. So their Instagram page is at WCSU underscore nutrition, and this is where they will be posting healthy recipes, and um, they're very easy to, to make, um, very affordable, and it's just um, healthy tips. Uh, on how to uh, properly pick fruits, vegetables, and um, just to properly like prepare your meal. And um, to enter the raffle, you will have to post uh, like a, a healthy meal that you prepared yourself. It doesn't have to be one that's on the Instagram page. It could be one that of your own. And you post that, and then um, your name will be sent into a raffle, and you have a chance to win a T-shirt. That's cool. What recipe would you... Submit. Oh, geez. What recipe will I submit? Let's see. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I cook, but I don't know if I cook the healthiest choices. Uh, I don't know. I will have to look up some recipes. And I, I remember one year I made a chicken uh, stuffed with spinach, and that was really good. It was something different. That sounds good. And I was like, okay, well, this is a little healthier, so I guess I can and try that. Uh, yeah, especially if it's range-free, right? Yeah. Is that what they call it? Range? Range-free, yeah. yeah. Free range? Free, free range, range. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Cage-free. Cage-free and free, free range, range. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I tried to make that, but um, I want to try to make some other stuff, you know, because it is important to eat healthy. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I probably will try to enter in the raffle and just, I like to cook anyway, so this is a great way to cook and also cook healthier and yeah. Eat healthy. That's yeah. good for all of us. Yes. And the raffle will be um, April 9th. So you do have time to have your um, name entered in a raffle, but don't wait. Mm. You know, the recipes are on there. So just get started and try different things. Cool. Yeah. So that's one thing that students can do over spring break is, you know, look at some recipes and cook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the Wellness Center um, during spring break, it, it's located in room 119 in Berkshire Hall. Um, Midtown campus. Um, it will be open daily from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Yeah. yeah, I should go by there then because yeah. I still have to work even though it's spring break. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be in Miami during the time. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, hopefully, um, 
I'll bring back some of the warm weather. Yeah, uh, that's good. <laughs> with me. Bring back some healthy snacks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, the Wellness Center is open for those of you who feel like um, would like to stop by. Um, it is open. And, again, it's uh, open from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., um, room 119 in Berkshire Hall, which is located on Midtown Campus. Um, let's see. The math clinic for students that are in, uh, have to do euporium hours or things like that. Uh, the spring hours are from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., Monday through Thursday, so the math clinic will be open. Wow. And it's good to have resources open during spring break because not a lot of students go on vacation, and there's some students that really want to utilize that their time and um, get work done. Mm-hmm. So it's good that the resources are not just completely shut down and students can come back and uh, still get work done. So you don't think everyone will be in Miami? <laughs> a lot of people that I talk to will be in Miami, but I'm I'm sure there's going to be many students still here and wanting to do work. Oh. <laughs> so, the, the, well, there's a downside to going to Miami. I must get all my work done before I leave. Oh. So I'm crunch time right now to get it all done so I can have a peaceful and happy vacation (laughs) but for those students who um, do have time to get assignments done and everything their resources are open so that's a is that really why you're not going to Hartford, the capital of the Oh, tomorrow? no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not why. <laughs> I would love to go there, but unfortunately, a family emergency came up, mm. so I wouldn't be able to attend, but I would have loved to so I can report back on the podcast. What about priorities? You say you're very good at setting your own priorities, yeah. and uh, so it's you know <laughs> supporting WestCon and yeah. before the legislators in Hartford yeah. or a family emergency. <laughs> I know. It's so hard to choose which one is first. (laughs) They're both very important. But hopefully, you know, I have the opportunity again. Mm -hmm. um, That's right. You're only a junior. We can take you next year. Yeah, so hopefully next year I'll be able to go because I had a full speech ready. Well, actually, my boss, Daryl, he was talking to me and he was like, I hope you're taking notes. (laughs) Like, I'm taking notes, I promise. So, um, but yeah, it's a great opportunity. I believe um, Victor Namir, I believe that's Mm -hmm. the other student that will be attending. Um, And... uh, Myself, along with Victor, got asked to speak in Hartford in front of a, a finance committee, is it? Appropriations. Appropriate. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And um, just talk about our experience here at WestCon, why the resources here at WestCon are so important, and um, just how we utilize it all. And um, I felt it was in my comfort zone because that's what I do here on the podcast. I talk about resources all the time. That's right. So, um, and it's also important that outside of WestCon, people understand, you know, all of their – that's provided here for the students and so um so that we can just get more people interested in coming to the school and we can just keep these resources here mm-hmm. so it's a very important um event and conference i wish i could make it i really wish i could but unfortunately something came up so that beat the priority but hopefully next year i'll be asked back again and i'd love to just share some more because I'll, I'll have more under my belt then too I was talking to the president of the university about this thing, taking mm-hmm. students up to Hartford, and he mentioned your name specifically. Oh, wow. Wow. So I haven't told him yet that you turned us down. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But hopefully next year I'm, I'm ready. I have yeah. a full speech ready, and I'm good <laughs> to go. But, All right. Um, Yes, congrats congrats to uh, Victor, and I'm sure he'll do a wonderful job. And yes. I, He has a lot under his belt also. He's very involved on campus mm-hmm. with the honors um, and, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, a really great student. 
Um, and it's just a, another important aspect get where getting involved could get you. You know, you never know when That's your name right. is going to be brought up or asked to do something like this because mm-hmm. I would have never thought. Um, but it's good to have your name out there and, and opportunities just open. So that's what I say all the time. So this is a perfect example. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll take advantage of it next year. I will, definitely. I'm, I'm going to tell my grandma just to hold off. <laughs> like, grandma, relax. <laughs> this is my time. <laughs> you got me last year. No, this year is my time. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully um, next year, definitely. I'm shooting for it. Okay. <laughs> um, as you know, March 22nd, ACSA will be hosting their annual fashion show. I heard it's going to be a great big event. Um, It's going to take place in Whitehall, Ives Concert Hall. Um, Doors open at 7, so make sure you come out and see all the nice designs and all the models, and you Mm. might see your friend in there, so don't be afraid to cheer. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a great event. So March 22nd, doors open at 7. Great. And so March 26th, which is a Tuesday, we have a special guest speaker. She's a former, uh, well, she I think she actually still is playing basketball. I'm not sure. But she plays basketball, and she's a speaker. And she broke many records um, based off her performance, and her dream was to pr- uh, play professionally. But it kind of got um, ended because of her uh religion and her nationality and she wears the hijab so she fought uh for women to wear the hijab while playing a a national sport as basketball um which i find to be very empowering because when this event was brought to me by msa and pac um they told me her story and this was the first time actually of hearing her story Mm -hmm. and i didn't understand well this is my first time even trying to understand like how she would feel because it's just not something that's you know while I'm watching basketball I think right. okay well you know what if you can't show your hair or, you know things like that I I didn't think about that so um, having her speak with us um, is going to be very interesting and I think her story is very compelling mm-hmm. yeah so. it's re- it is really interesting yeah. I think I saw her play in a college game somewhere mm-hmm. and uh, it's you know she stands out because she's wearing the hijab yeah. And you kind of wonder how it works, but she made it work. Yeah. But uh, you were saying that she, the WNBA didn't wouldn't allow her to wear it. Yeah, and that's what she was fighting against because um, she wanted to wear it professionally. I think she also got a, a sponsorship from Nike hmm. um, to like a uh, sponsor hijab, like Nike hijabs, mm-hmm. which is um, I think is a huge step because again, when you're watching the WNBA or even college, you know, women play. I don't, I don't see, you know, women wearing hijabs and, and I, you know, I always, it's something that I now wonder about. Um, Okay. If you are of a certain religion, if you do have certain, um, you know, clothing that you must wear, how would they accommodate, Mm -hmm. accommodate you for um, uniforms and things like that? And so apparently they won't. Right. Which is a discussion that needs to be had. So, um, yeah, I think her story is uh, very compelling, and uh, everyone should go out and, and listen to her speak. It's Tuesday, March 26th at 8 p.m. in the West Side Ballroom. Oh, good. Yeah. So expecting a big crowd. I, I, yeah, I'm definitely going to go to it because I just find her story very interesting, and um, I, I just want to learn more about it. And it, it's, it opened my eyes again because just, it's just not something that I thought about. Mm-hmm. So I think 
that's the important to get the conversation going. You have to actually, you know, hear about it and yeah. start to ask questions and things like that. So good for her and kudos to her to mm-hmm. not like, ba- you know, bowing down and, you know, right. not taking no for an answer. So, yeah. And it's free, right? It is a free so event. Like show up. Yes. You can just show up and listen to her um, talk about it. It's, it's, it is free. So no charge and it's open to student staff and I believe it's open to the outside. Uh, I think so yes. too. Yeah. So come out and uh, we want it to be a great event and just uh, just hear her story, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't play basketball, I think I could confide in her, like, her, like yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, because I, I did dance. And so I, you know, what if I had, you know, my religion uh, prohibit me to like wear certain things, you mm-hmm. know. And so I, I just it's something that opened my eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Um, there's going to be a career fair um, m- March 27th from 1 to 4.30 p.m. Um, it's going to be in the O'Neill Center. So make sure you come out and, um, you know, participate and uh, bring your resumes and uh, just see, you know, all the different options there are for different careers. Again, this is a another resource that WCSU has for us as students and um, it's important that we utilize all of these resources and so again it's March 27th in the O'Neill Center 1 to 4 30 p.m. That's the big uh, career fair. Yes. Hundreds of students show up and there's I think 80 booths of employers. Yeah yeah and um, you know that's important especially because like uh, if you're having trouble just um trying to find jobs or you think like jobs are not available in your area you'll be surprised at how Mm -hmm. many jobs are available in your career in the area that you are in now so um, I think it's important to go out and just open your eyes and maybe there's another avenue that you didn't think of and you know and you practice talking to employers yeah 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 it's a great Mm -hmm. um it's a great way to get like mock interviews or whatever you know just to see Mm -hmm. get your feet wet kind of and see how it is in the field so cool yeah so that's another event that's going on. And the Honors House will be hosting a book drive for the uh, month of March. Um, Honor Students of Compassion will be collecting any and all books that, for, that are for you or anyone that you wish to donate books. Um, they can drop them off at the Honors House. Um, and um, they're going to accept them all the way until April. They're not sure of the exact date of April yet, but it'll be something for the whole month of March. What are they going to do with them? Um, I think they're going to donate them to community outreach uh, programs. So they're going to donate them towards the Center for Creativity, Compassion, and Innovation. Yeah. So I got a ton of books at home. So they'll take, I can just load them up and bring them? You can load them, yeah. You can load them up and bring them. And they'll sort them. Yeah. I need to go through my books. I have a lot of children's books because I never really got rid of my books from when I was little. Mm -hmm. And my mom, she just wanted to hang on to them. I don't know why, but (laughs) I have tons of books. So, um, yeah, books for all ages, too. So there's no, you know, it doesn't have to be children's books. It could be um, high school. It could be adult books, like whatever books that you have that you don't want anymore and are in decent condition. um, You can donate to the Honors House for the whole uh, month of March. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice thing. Reading is always important, and some students um, can't always afford books and things like that and resources. So when we have them, it's important to share. Mm-hmm. And um, 
just give back to the community. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And cleaning out is important, too. Yes, yes. It's a great way to do spring cleaning, you know, because hopefully spring is coming around. So I hope so. Maybe it'll start, you know, our spring cleaning process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get those books out of there. And then maybe you continue it with getting other things out of there. Yeah. Yeah. I have to wait till my wife's out of the house because <laughs> she won't let me get rid of those books. Oh, really? Mm. My mom is a total – she knows she throws, like, a lot of stuff away, uh-huh. a lot of important papers and things, and then she goes back to look for them. She's like, oh, I think I threw them away. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, you probably did because when you start cleaning, you just have a mind of your own and you just start throwing away. But for some reason, she didn't want to get rid of my books, so – it's like, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> it reminds her. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, of course, she's waiting for grandchildren, too. Right. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully my brother will deliver that soon, but <laughs> I have time. So yes, I'm like, you sure. do. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad is the total opposite. He's like, you know, I think he knows my mom so well now. He's like, it's probably in the garbage. He's like, you have to watch your mom while she's cleaning because she throws everything away. That is she's pretty like, funny. Yes. Yeah. So I think he knows her so well. Uh-huh. <laughs> Then she admits it, it sounds like. So yeah, no, she knows, but she just continues to do it. So it's fine. <laughs> but she knows she's doing it. So, yeah, oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, Westcon Rec, uh, which is located Midtown Colonial Fitness Zone, is open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., Monday through Wednesday, and 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., Thursdays, and Fridays, 2 to 8 p.m. And I just wanted to broadcast WestCon Rec because a lot of students don't know that they actually host classes like mm. Zumba, yoga, uh, kickboxing, mm. um, aerobics. A lot of different classes uh, host Monday through Thursday. And if you go into Berkshire Hall and you look at the bulletin board right next to Studio uh, B, I believe it is, there's a list of um, classes it's there's some during the day, some at night um, that students are can take, and it's free of charge, so you don't have to pay for it. And wow, it's that's open. great. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of students um, they either not aware of the classes, um, and they're or they're afraid that they're gonna. It's between you know class time, and you know they're just not gonna be able to make it. But um, it's actually great uh resource to have for the gym especially for zumba like i know a lot of students may have gym memberships in order to take a zumba class you have to pay for it Mm -hmm. but we have zumba here for free so um it's really important to utilize that i've been to two zumba classes and one uh like this workout class uh and it was very good the instructors are very nice so um yeah i i just want students to uh know that they can utilize that resource also Maybe yeah. they don't go because Zumba is hard. Maybe. I don't know. It comes naturally for me. But again, yeah. I, I'm a dancer. So, yeah, yeah. That's right. But, you know, it's for everyone. So you can go at your own pace. So no, you, you don't can. have to worry about, uh, you know, being on the same level as someone else. You go whatever pace is comfortable for you. Either way, you're getting the same workout. So Really? Yeah. So while you're showing off, I could be going slow. And I'd still it's be okay. in good shape. You'll pick up over time. Oh, Everyone okay. will get it. <laughs> You'll pick up over time. It's all good. Because when I first started, I was like, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, wow, she's going pretty fast. But then I just got comfortable enough. And uh, I, I kept with it. And I, I liked it. And it was it's a great workout. And I like Zumba mm. because it doesn't feel like I'm working out. It just yeah. feels like, you know. Mm. extra activity that I like to do so cool yeah and they have that they have yoga and we also have um 
like the baseball, what is it, the batting cages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is really fun. I did that one time, and it was actually really fun. It was? Like, yeah. I was afraid that the balls were going to hit me. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. But, um, no, they were really fun, and you just have to get, like, a token or something from the office. And, uh, it, again, it's free, so you don't, as long as you have your student ID, you're fine. Hmm. And uh, go to the batting cages. And it's a great way to de-stress. <laughs> It you is. know, axe throwing is becoming more popular. <laughs> maybe we could get an axe throwing cage. <laughs> oh, wow, cage. maybe. Yeah. We should have that. I have to break that up, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're sure. Yeah. You're right in the middle of it. <laughs> right. I mean, axe throwing, you know, it's a great way for students to de-stress, so maybe. I haven't brought, done this, but I, apparently you can bring a picture of somebody you hate <laughs> and put it up on the bullseye and then throw the axe at it. That would be fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great way to de-stress. Just imagine the, the stress falling right off as exactly. soon as you throw it. <laughs> be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yes, the gym has that also. So, yeah, there's a lot of resources here on campus yeah. that I just keep discovering, too. So, like the Career Center. Mm-hmm. Again, what they, they came and talked to social work students about uh, our resumes. Uh-huh. And now they're hosting another event um, for interviews, mock interviews. And they also help you search for jobs. So it's just many different resources that we have here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, that's really great. The Career yeah. Success Center is a great thing. It is. And it's nice that they think about social work, too, because yeah. uh, I think a lot of people, I don't know, they don't think about that as a traditional job. Right. And obviously it is. Yeah. And, it's, it's, and that's very true. And so when she talked to us, she was kind of surprised about how much we actually do. <laughs> And which is fine. I mean, I love to like educate people on social work because before I got into the field of social work, I was just I had a one sided view, too. I know it was helping people. I didn't know how extensive it was until I actually got into the field. And so, you know, it's not for everyone, but I think there is a, a preconceived notion of how social work is. And it's it's very broad. It's a lot of elements, a lot of parts. You're working in macro and micro levels. Mm. So uh, you're working with groups of people. You might be working with an individual. You might be working on policies. So mm-hmm. like Washington, you know, you might be in D.C. working, you know, in the White House or something. And that's social work also. But a lot of people don't think that that falls under the realm of social work. But right. it does. Yep. It does. So, um, yeah, I can talk about social work all day. <laughs> I just I actually have to finish filling out my senior application that's due on Friday and uh, we actually have to pick a population that we want to work with and Mm. it just gets you started you know okay I gotta think about senior year now and like then graduate school so you have to really think about okay what population works for you Um, who do you think you want to work with what kind of you know job you want to have what kind of work you want to do for the community because it's all community based work so um, yeah, but I love it. I love it. And I, cool. I think there's a part of social work in everyone. We just, you just don't think you have it, but I think you do. <laughs> so I think so. I like to think so. Cause some, sometimes, you know, I talk to my friends and they're like describing to me what they want to do. And I'm just like, hmm, that sounds like social work. Mm-hmm. But you know, you just never know. Cause it's so broad and yeah. it's, it, there's a lot of parts. So yeah. Have you figured out what population you want to work on? I think I have, like, I think I want to work with juveniles because mm-hmm. my ultimate goal is to create a reentry program. So when juveniles get out of the juvenile detention center, trying to get them, um, whatever, whichever level they are at at the time, whether it's, uh, a middle school level, high school level, or, you know, trying to get their diploma, trying to get them on a career a path. So mm-hmm. like going to college, if that's an option or doing a trade um, and then work on basic uh, skills such as interviewing skills or, you know, proper manners, etiquette, just anything that will help um, help them succeed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
So you changed some lives. Yeah, yeah. That's my ultimate goal. So yes, so right now my population is juveniles, but it's constantly changing. Because mm-hmm. before I just wanted to work with children. Now I'm open to working with juveniles, and I'm open to working with um, substance abuse uh, clients and mm-hmm. domestic violence. So it's just, it's a lot. I have a wow. lot of interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to have the passion and the heart for it mm-hmm. also. And it's okay, you know, because you do hear a lot of stories, and um it can be a trigger for you, so you have to be aware of yourself also before working with the clients. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot. It's a mm-hmm. lot. So. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. We'll talk <laughs> about that some more over the next couple of years. Oh, of course, yeah. It's, it's going to be more uh, senior year because uh-huh. I'm going to be more into the field. So, right. yeah, it should be good. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks for all that, Chantel. Thank you. Have a great time in Miami. Thank you. You'll tell us all about <laughs> I it, right? I will. I'll come back and tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good. See you later. Bye. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Scott Volpe, and engineer, Pete Puccio, who makes sure these podcasts are available to our many listeners. Remember, WCSU 411 is absolutely free. So subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. There's a way to listen to us on Amazon Echo and Google whatever that is, too. So you should figure that out so your parents can listen in while they're making dinner or doing whatever they do when you're not at home. For Chantel Williams, I'm Paul Steinmetz, and this is WCSU 411.